Coming to you live from DevX Studios in Washington, D.C., I'm Kate Midden, and welcome to this week's episode of Long Story Short. We are here to talk climate with our West Coast correspondent, Catherine Cheney, who's joining us by phone from California. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So there have been so many big climate announcements, summits, just recommendations, everything this month. Can you just frame this up for us and tell us why this month was such a big deal for climate world? Yes, this has been a big month for climate. Um, and what we'll be following at DevX is really making sure that uh, this momentum that these events are supposed to generate will actually continue. Um, so this month kicked off with negotiations in Bangkok, and uh, one of our colleagues based in Bangkok actually covered these attempts to sort of develop a rule book uh, ahead of the um, COP meetings that will be taking place in Poland in December. Um, so that's how we kicked off September. Um, and then last week, um, you know, I had been gearing up for the Global Climate Action Summit here in San Francisco. Um, but heard a few days prior, and, and the DevX News team covered this as well, uh, that the UN Secretary General would be announcing a 2019 uh, climate summit hosted by the United Nations. So that was a huge deal. You know, Guterres really saying that this is a priority of the UN, that we are going to use the UN um, as a convening body to drive action around climate. Right. So um, that so really that was just did. A few days That that really did happen, you know, just a couple days before. I think it was Friday before the kickoff of the Global Climate Action Summit. You know, what what did he actually announce? Yeah, so this was um, the Monday before uh, the Global Climate Action Summit, the same week uh, that he actually made this announcement of the 2019 uh, United Nations Conference. I mean, the whole point was that it's more than a conference, right? Um, A lot of people who organize conferences... (laughs) try to say that it's more than a conference, but really um, pushing the point that the UN is unique in its ability to drive um, national action around climate. But what's interesting is that was just a few days prior to the Global Climate Action Summit, um, the whole idea of the Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco, it was really about subnational and non-state action around climate. And just a bit of background there for those who don't know the backstory, um, Governor Jerry Brown, the governor of California, uh, basically announced uh, after President Trump pulled out of the Paris Agreement that, you know, no matter the stance of the Trump administration, um, you know, we are still in, right? That was kind of the the main line of the Global Climate Action Summit. We being the state of California, we being other governors, we being mayors and CEOs and civil society organizations. Yeah, that that was was really uh, the framing of last week. Yeah, yeah, that was really something because I know I remember last year at COP, you know, the big UN climate conference, there was a big America's tent, you know, US tent in Bonn and Jerry Brown and everyone who's part of the we still we're still in campaign rented it out and threw a big party Mm -hmm. there, you know, just to be to be splashy about it and very clear about that messaging. (laughs) Totally. And then, and just to kind of connect the dots between um, some of these events, you know, the idea is um, that between um, the 2015 talks in Paris and the 2020 talks in Paris, um, that we see real commitments um, to, to slow down this crisis of climate change. Um, 
And so last week, again, a spotlight on the role of subnational and non-state actors here in San Francisco. Um, and the idea was to build momentum going into next week where we have the UN General Assembly. Um, there will be discussions on climate we're tracking there. Um, and then moving in to uh, the COP meetings in Poland in December um, and on from there. So, um, you know, and happy to dive in a little further on some of the trends I saw, but I think that the main um, theme of last week was really uh, this will take action not just by heads of state and national governments, but by all um, stakeholders, again, uh, CEOs, mayors, governors, uh, indigenous groups. That was a big focus last week as well. Yeah, it sounds like this is very... Um, like very complementary in nature when we talk about the UN and this big international body, you know, announcing a climate summit, and then on top of that, having you know the role of subnational actors and non-state actors really come to the fore to kind of broaden the influence of you know actors who are working to stall the creep of dangerous climate change. I know from your reporting that there were some really big, you know, glaring trends that you found as you were really covering the Global Climate Action Summit. What was the first kind of big story that you saw um, emerge at the summit? Sure. Um, so there was actually one story that I was interested in following going in. Um, and, you know, that's a strategy I always try to take at these conferences where you can be 10 places at once. Um, what are some big questions you have going in? So um, I was curious to what extent food systems would be a part of the conversation. Um, actually, the week prior to the Global Climate Action Summit, there was a conference in Berkeley that I attended, um, and it was called the Good Food Conference. And, um, you know, the organizers of this conference uh, basically do not see animals as part of our food systems in the future. So definitely keep in mind they're coming from that perspective, right? Um, they want to see plant-based meat and quote-unquote clean meat, right, lab-generated meat products, um, be uh, on a global basis how we get our meat moving forward. So, you know, not necessarily a mainstream perspective, but I, I, I went to this Good Food Conference to hear from speakers like um, – the founder of Impossible Foods, which creates the Impossible Burger, Pat Brown. We featured him on DevX before. And and I found it really interesting just to the broader discussion of not necessarily whether meat is going to be a part of our food system in the future, but how do we make our food system more sustainable? I mean, with a growing planet facing climate change, we cannot uh, continue on the status quo path uh, for most of our systems, including food systems. Um, so... You know, learning from that Good Food Conference, then going into the Global Climate Action Summit, I was very curious about this question of, of where um, food systems fit in. And it turns out they did. So, um, you know, definitely recommend checking out uh, just a quick story on this about some of the commitments around food systems. One was the, the Global Environment Facility um, announced that um, $4 billion in funding that they had committed um, to climate more broadly, that $500 million from that commitment would go to food systems. Food systems actually made up uh, the largest bucket of funding within that $4 billion of funding. And so I spoke with um, the CEO of the GEF just to hear, you know, how can we tackle um, food systems as part of our climate change efforts? And, and it was definitely a major emphasis throughout the week. Yeah, the food systems piece is fascinating because I feel like when we talk about 
climate change and we talk about how to stall it, you know, we're often talking about policies that, as you say, don't really have to do with agriculture in the way that we are talking about right now, but in a lot of the one-on-one conversations you have with policymakers and people who work for governments, you know, the thing that you can hear over and over again is that, you know, the big, one of the biggest contributions that people can make to stalling climate change is not eating meat. But it's, it can be right. an unpopular position to take publicly, and so it's hard for people to say that out loud in front of cameras. Very true. Well, and um, actually, just to take you inside um, the conference a little bit, the summit last week, um, you know, when I spoke with Pat Brown um, from Impossible a little while back, uh, he was kind of speaking to that point, and he said it drives him crazy when he goes to conferences like COP and people are eating burgers. Um, I, I will say uh, one of the impressive things to me about the Global Climate Action Summit was a real commitment to sustainability for the event itself. Um, you know, you can um, read up on this, but there are all kinds of reports about exactly how the event works to um, reduce its own carbon footprint and account for its own carbon footprint, um, lots of plant-based options, et cetera. So that was kind of interesting. And, you know, I would also just say um, two stories that I had coming out of the summit last week um, beyond food systems. Two stories I looked at um, were basically about communities trying to make their causes more mainstream in the climate change discussion. So one of those communities was the global health community. Um, there was a whole day-long event that was really fascinating at um, the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF. And it was basically a bunch of global health leaders saying, you know, climate change is the single greatest threat to global health in this century. We need to be a part of this conversation and we need to act on climate change. And I found that um, to be a really fascinating narrative to follow. Um, so wrote about that last week, but we'll also uh, continue to follow how the global health community remains involved in this conversation. Yeah, Secondly, so I want- um, advocates Oh, go ahead. I, I want to dig into this a little bit because this is a really excellent sure. um, illustration of how climate change really accept, really intersects with our community. Um, you know, a yeah. lot of our listeners work in global health, operate or influencers in global health. You know, what what is this intersection that you're seeing emerge between health and climate change? And what are you hearing about how that could factor into things like programming or financing? Sure. I mean, um, I think we're going to see a lot more, not just talk about how, you know, the global health community needs to take more action on climate change, but people operationalizing on that. So I'll give a few examples. I mean... Um, I met people from the World Health Organization, the World Bank, the United Nations, whose titles and whose portfolios are all about the intersection of climate and health. So I think we're going to see um, more, you know, individual positions, more departments, perhaps even more funds around this intersection. Um, one of the interesting interviews I had last week was with uh, Howie Frumpkin, um, who recently joined the Wellcome Trust in the UK. And he leads their Our Planet, Our Health initiative. So that's just one example of something I think we'll see more of. Um, and, and I would broaden that even further, that it's not just global health and climate change and that nexus where we're going to see a lot more action, but global development more broadly. Um, 
And so for our, our readership and, and listenership and our community who works in international development, um, I would also expect to see more on the climate development intersection. One statistic I brought up um, in my story kind of on this conversation among global health leaders was how, uh, according to the World Bank, 100 million people could be pushed into poverty by 2030 due to the impacts of climate change. Um, so economic just like the global health imperative, there's a huge development imperative yeah yeah i mean that that is a huge number of people um because you were yes exactly to your point it's one thing to talk about global health but also looking more broadly at development and the economic development and how all of these different pieces factor in um Mm absolutely some of this portends to could we talk oh go ahead could we talk oceans for a second because i did want to return to that we can always talk oceans oceans and then the other thing that you previewed (laughs) earlier was about indigenous people so let's talk about let's start with oceans and then we'll go indigenous people okay great um yeah you know i i'm someone who's very interested in uh sdg 14 um it was certainly on the agenda at the global climate action summit uh connecting oceans with the climate change conversation um and Again, just because I think it's helpful to sort of bring people inside the summit, um, details that don't always make it into my stories, let me just describe a scene for you that I thought was was fun and kind of points to why this convening was pretty different. Um, So I went to an Oceans reception at one of the Salesforce buildings in San Francisco, and four people were standing around the podium who you might not always see together. So it was John Kerry, uh, the former U.S. Secretary of State, who started the Our Ocean Conference, um, huge advocate for ocean conservation and um, its centrality to the future of our climate and our planet. Um, Julie Packard, who is the executive director at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, also the daughter of David and Lucille Packard, major uh, funders, their foundation in oceans. Um, Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, and himself very active in ocean conservation philanthropy. And then Jane Goodall, um, the famous conservationist, and and she was speaking to um, some lessons for for ocean conservationists from um, forest conservationists. Anyway, speaking of the power of uh, non-state and sub-national actors, just seeing a group like that standing around a podium getting ready to talk about oceans and climate um, was pretty fascinating. And and what I wanted to emphasize here, because I think there are learnings for other communities as well, the tactics that the ocean conservationists are taking in trying to make their priority um, part of the mainstream climate conversation is not just to point to the ocean as a victim of climate change, but to point to the ocean as a tool in the fight against climate change, a more solutions-oriented stance. So um, that's sort of, sort of the angle I took in that story, and I think it might be useful um, for our community. And and so, Kate, you asked about um, indigenous communities. Um yeah, that was definitely a focus of, of the Global Climate Action Summit. Um, no, I would say not just indigenous groups, um, but also community-based organizations, um, even mayors. How do we get people who are closer to these problems um, in a better position to help address them? I feel like and, this is um, actually this is a conversation yeah. that's happening across every single element of the global development space. I mean, it's... It's totally. so important, but it's it also admittedly feels a little bit like why is this so hard? 
you know, to get to have community-led exactly. development, to have initiatives that are supposed to help bring about economic prosperity and stability, be dictated mm-hmm. and determined and mm-hmm. led by the people who both require and benefit from having happier, healthier, more stable and prosperous lives. Absolutely. No, I completely agree that part of what makes this um, such an interesting story to follow is, yeah, the challenge in funding around climate is shared by funding in so many of the sectors we cover um, at DevEx. And, you know, it's this challenge of getting especially groups that deploy huge amounts of capital, right, large donor agencies, major foundations um, with huge endowments. There, there's this, there are several barriers that stand in the way of that money making it to people close to the problem. Um, and I actually had a, a conversation with Darren Walker from the Ford Foundation about this, and I asked him exactly that, kind of what you were hinting at, you know, what stands in the way. And he said, um, and I pulled up his quote here just to reference, ideology stands in the way, arrogance stands in the way, tradition and customary policy stand in the way. Um, but we dug a little deeper into that, you know, and, and I wanted to get at not just what's the problem, but what are some potential solutions here? Um, so let me just mention a few things, and I actually am working on a story right now, um, it should be coming out tomorrow, talking about exactly this dynamic, the challenge big funders and supporting local solutions around climate. So what, um, what are some so of I those think, practical yeah. solutions that you, that you found in the course of that reporting? Sure. Um, so one thing I would mention, I mean, there are a growing number of efforts aimed at addressing exactly this dynamic. So one is called the Grassroots Climate Solutions Fund. Um, and I spoke with the woman who coordinates that fund, Lindley Meese. And what we talked about is, you know, she doesn't just want to get the typically smaller scale funders who are already supporting indigenous groups. She wants to talk to mainstream large endowment donors um, to, to really think through, you know, what are some of the barriers. Um, she, she emphasized the importance of going back to basics and just hearing about their worldviews as funders, um, their theories of change, and figuring out why does that not align with supporting local solutions. And, and so this fund basically aims to move the needle. It's one of a number of efforts that is really just driving a conversation among donors about what are the pain points and how can we help address them. One thing that I do think helps to address that is networks, and um, I'll talk about what I mean by that. So, uh, actually, Howie Frumkin, who I mentioned earlier, um, was the one who pointed this out to me, that one of the big challenges for funders is they think if they're supporting local solutions, it is inherently not scalable, right? Like, oh, I'm going to support this one local group here, great, and then I have to reinvent the wheel and find 10 other initiatives to support. But then you look at networks. So an example would be, um, in the climate world, B40. It's a network of cities committed to climate action. Another would be the Under Two Coalition, which is a network of states and regions. So last week, both C40 and the Under Two Coalition had meetings at the Global Climate Action Summit. And those meetings are all about networking with one another, sharing best practices, learning from failures and successes. And what Howie was saying is, a network approach like that sort of unlocks an opportunity for funders where, you know, if they're funding something in point A, it could actually affect point B and point C because of this network effect. So I think that's one um, 
potential solution. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, so what I'm hearing on the solutions front is number one, communication, basic, but eternal um, in fostering yeah. kind of stronger programming, but also this idea that funders don't want to get behind something they don't think is scalable because the context is too specific is just so antithetical right. to what it feels like everyone who's actually working on you know, working very much in concert with these programs is saying, which is we need to have context specific programming. We need to be locally led. Like the idea that you can't take one program in Zambia and replicate it in Bolivia and get the same outcomes. That I don't. There just feels like there needs to be a better way to think about it, other than something that's just you know, I can't make it bigger and apply it everywhere. Like, there just needs to be a better way to think about context is what that says to me. Yeah, I agree. And and I do just want to mention one other thing, which is um, I, I think, you know, when it comes to funding local solutions, it is critical that we... Um, well, let me, let me throw out a few things. I, I, I got a little bit of pushback on this, honestly, but I found it fascinating. So I was talking with Kevin Starr from the Mulago Foundation, uh, he's a funder here in the Bay Area, supports a lot of social entrepreneurs working to tackle challenges, including climate change. And he talked about, and I think this kind of gets at what you were just saying, you know, we should fund the best solutions wherever they come from, right? Um, the key is that it's suited to a local context and based on what works locally. Um, so this is actually at an event featuring uh, Next Leaf Analytics. This is sort of in my West Coast beat, right? They're a Los Angeles-based um, social enterprise. Their founder is based in LA. They do um, sensors and data collections for um, cook stoves and vaccine delivery. Now, she's based in LA, but the key is uh, she works very much in a way that is geared toward um, local preferences and uses data um, to do so. So I just thought that that was really helpful pushback um, and, and something to consider. And I'll say um, one more thing. I, I spoke with Justin Way um, from the Climate Works Foundation, and I'm actually speaking with the head of the Climate Works Foundation next week at UNGA. Um, they're all about basically making philanthropy a more powerful actor in climate action. And he talked about um, sort of a both and. He said, you know, we need the bottom-up solutions. We need the top-down solutions. For too long, climate change um, has worked in a top-down way, and, and obviously that's not working. But he did remind me, you know, it's not all about local solutions. At the end of the day, the climate and energy transition is systemic. And he said, you know, it's also really important for us to realize we don't get to a safe climate future if we just all change light bulbs. Yeah. Completely is... agree. So I think it's a both-and, right? It is, it is a salient critique. So we only have about two minutes left, but I do want to look ahead to both some reporting that you're doing, a story that you have coming out in the next couple of days, but also you know, we are heading to UNGA next week and want to hear what you're looking at in terms of climate. Sure. Um, yeah, so what's coming up? I mean, um, a couple things I'll mention. One is that I, there's this piece coming up on um, you know some of the barriers that stand in the way of funders supporting local solutions around climate. Um, and I think, you know, some voices that I'm really excited to include in that piece. Um, I'll preview one thing that, that's going to appear in that piece. So um, Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados, spoke uh, at the summit. And I, I was uh, definitely paying close attention to some island nations represented at the summit because DevEx is sort of shining a spotlight on um, 
the impact of climate on island nations. Um, and she was talking about how, um, you know, these countries are often subject to uh, definitions that are made thousands of miles away. Um, so that comes up in my story tomorrow. And I just think um, it's worth keeping in mind, again, wherever the solutions come from, making sure it's grounded in local perspectives and context. Um, another quick thing I'll be following, I had the chance to ask Bill Gates a question on climate change last week, and we have a story on his views on that. Um, you know, kind of connecting the dots between his views on climate change as he articulated them and the discussion around global health and climate action last week. The Gates Foundation is the largest private foundation in the world. Global health is their priority. I certainly wonder, hmm, could we see more around climate in terms of the climate and health intersection? Um, and then at UNGA, uh, so there's going to be the One Planet Summit. The One Planet Summit actually started uh, last year, and, um, you know, some uh, heavy hitters in the climate sphere are going to be coming together talking about, again, climate action. Um, this is hosted along with the Bloomberg um, Forum, which I believe you'll be attending. Um, I'm going to do a couple interviews at UNGA around climate. Um, one is with uh, the head of Climate Works Foundation, as I mentioned. And I'll also quickly mention I'm speaking with the Minister of Climate and Environment from Norway um, at the World Economic Forum meetings next week. Norway was all over the agenda last week in San Francisco. Um, they were a big supporter of this conference. So curious to learn more about their work well, we will um, definitely, and their of climate action. We will definitely keep an eye out for your reporting and be putting everything both on our Global Goals Week microsite. So if you Google Global Goals Week DevX, that will come up. We'll also be putting everything on our social media channels. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us this week. And we will have everyone follow all of the great stories that you're publishing in the coming days. Thank you so much. It was fun to talk. All right. Uh, we will be coming to you live on Facebook this Sunday at 2 o'clock Eastern time from the Social Good Summit to give a more rounded out preview of what you can expect from the UN General Assembly, which opened the stores to the 73rd session this week. And then next week on Long Story Short, we will be go coming to you from inside the UN with UN correspondent Amy Lieberman. So be sure to tune in on Facebook and come back to our SoundCloud and iTunes where the audio will be posted thereafter. Thank you so much and have a great rest of your week.